Amen. Please be seated. If you have a Bible, you can open to Genesis chapter 3. We'll look at verses 1 through 7 this morning. The text is also printed in the bulletin for you on the next page. If you need a Bible, there are some available on the back table uh, near the children's Bibles and things that kids can use for coloring. And um, <clears throat> So uh, this morning, we're going to be talking about temptation to sin. Temptation is sin. Uh, temptation is what's going on inside of us that leads us to sin. Uh, it may actually start outside of us, but really the, the main features are something inside of us is changing, something inside of us is beginning to want sin, and uh, that, that leads us to sin, and it leads us to, to uh, the wages of sin, which is death, uh, the Bible says. So temptation is, what, is about what's going on inside of us in our hearts, and Jesus, uh, he's always talking about how the fact it, it's, it's, it's your heart that matters, right? It's not just your external behaviors. It's not just an apparent uh, obedience to God's law. It really is what's going on inside of you that matters. So it's important for us to consider temptation. <clears throat> and it, it's important because uh, Genesis 3, here at the beginning of the scriptures, that show the beginning of the trajectory of all the Bible and the trajectory of all of God's dealings with humanity throughout history, uh, this is an account of what's really wrong with the world. It's an account of what's really broken, what needs to be fixed, right? And essential to that account is this story of the temptation of Adam and Eve. So we need to understand temptation to sin to see how it works in humanity, uh, to see how it works in ourselves, <clears throat> and to know our need uh, for Jesus um, and truly appreciate the gospel and the power that the gospel has to change us. So uh, that's what we'll talk about this morning. Let's, uh, let's pray first, and then we'll read the scripture. Father, we uh, come here with various uh, degrees of um, submission to you in our hearts. Uh, probably uh, most of us feel that uh, too much we are characterized by, um, by our sinful rebellion, too much we're characterized by the, the failure in the face of temptation. This characterizes all of our lives, and it, uh, it even characterizes this moment as we sit underneath your word. We pray that you would make us uh, truly submissive to you as we listen to your word, that we would be able to hear it and not uh, reject your word, but that we would be changed by it, that your word would offer us hope and life, especially as we consider Jesus Christ, who is uh, the the feature presentation of your word, um, as he's understood in the gospel. We pray that you would fix our eyes on Christ even now as we consider this, your word. Um, We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. 
Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as we uh, start talking about temptation, we need to talk a little bit about the tempter, who we see here, the serpent, right? Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. This is a pretty mysterious introduction, right? It's pretty ambiguous. If you're just reading this, this part here, uh, it, he's a creature. The, ser- the serpent is, is a creature. He's one of those creatures that was explicitly called out uh, earlier in Genesis 1 when God was making everything. And the beasts of the field, I mean, he's one of those, right? The serpent is, is just subordinate uh, to Adam and Eve. He's one of those under Adam and Eve's charge, under their care. Right? He's just a, a creature like them, but, but even less than them. Right? And, and here we're surprised by the fact that he's uh, talking. Right? Um, it is ambiguous. It is kind of mysterious. We, you can't figure it out, actually, from the immediate context only. You can't figure out who this actually is unless you read beyond Genesis chapter 3. Um, which actually is a, is a good way for us to understand the scriptures. You've got to understand each part of the scriptures in light of the whole of the scriptures, right? So um, we can't understand this passage apart from understanding the whole Bible, but it, later in the scriptures, uh, in, in the Gospel of John, where Jesus is dealing with the, the Pharisees, and he says, you're of your father, the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning. He's a liar. He's the father of lies. And he's referring here to, to this passage that we read this morning from uh, Genesis 3. And then even, even later, at the end of the scriptures, in Revelation 12, <clears throat> it's talking about the great battle between the devil and his angels, uh, his fallen angels, and Michael and his angels, uh, the battle in heaven. And it says that the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Right, so the whole scriptures understand this to mean... Uh, when we look at that, that verse, verse 1, the serpent, just a creature, right? Uh, understand it to mean that somehow maybe behind this creature, maybe possessing this creature, somehow imbuing this creature with uh, slightly supernatural abilities, the ability to talk, right, uh, is, is an evil force. It's an evil power. It's the devil himself who is the adversary, Satan, the kind of more personal name by which we know the devil uh, that word means adversary, it means enemy. He's our enemy. He's God's enemy first. He's a personal enemy whose goal is to destroy God's kingdom and set up his own rival kingdom, which is characterized by autonomy from God, right? uh, self-centered, self-sufficient autonomy from God. Um, and that's what he's at work doing here early in the scriptures. It, it's fascinating that he uh, comes to Eve here sort of in the person of a serpent, right? There's something mysterious, there's something interesting about the fact that the devil doesn't just show up in his regular form, whatever that would be, uh, his angelic, more spiritual form. Um, he doesn't just show up that way. He, he show, it's kind of like an imitation incarnation, right? He comes into the world, uh, kind of gets the jump on God's son, <laughs> in a sense, by inhabiting, somehow coming in the form of a serpent, and uh, basically saying to Eve, hey, I'm with you. I'm on your side, and God is against you, right? That's at least implicit 
in, uh, in his uh, interactions with Eve. So <clears throat> he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Um, so here the serpent, the devil, is engaging in a covert operation, really. It's, it's covert, it's indirect, it's cautious de- deception. Right? He's beginning to deceive Eve, not by telling any lies, but kind of asking a question in a certain way. Right? The way that he asks the question and, and what he asks her and what he gets her to think about uh, through this seemingly innocuous, just a question, right, uh, suggestive question. Um, but he, he deliberately misquotes God. That's, what, that's where, it, where it starts off. It says, uh, did God actually say you, you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And actually, <clears throat> the way that it probably should be translated, is not, it's not a question that he's asking so much as he's starting to say a sentence. He's starting to say, even though God said you can't eat from any tree, and then she cuts him off and starts to correct him, right? No, we can't eat of any tree except for that one, except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But the way that he puts it, he's deliberately misquoting, he's deliberately kind of redirecting her attention, saying, even though God said, you know, apparently not generous at all, not, not uh, letting you eat from any of these trees, so he's misquoting and he's pretending to be sympathetic, right? Um, I'm on your side, right? The enemy himself pretending to be on our side, pretending to be sympathetic. The, the incredulous tone that comes across here, I um, can't believe God would say something like that to you, right? Uh, it, it's flattering. It's probably flattering to Eve. It creates this unthinking assumption that Eve is in a position to judge God, to judge God's commands, right? It allows her to start thinking she might deserve better than what God has actually placed in front of her. Um, the, the serpent is a subordinate. And maybe Eve is confused about like, why this snake, these other animals don't talk. Why is this snake talking to me? What is, what's the meaning of this interaction here? Maybe she's confused, <clears throat> but, but her presumption is that this is a subordinate. And if you can imagine... Maybe you're in a workplace environment where you've got a boss and you're the boss of other people and, um, and, and your subordinate comes up to you and kind of starts subtly pointing out that your relationship with your boss is not going very well. Right? <clears throat> your subordinate's pointing out your subordination in a way that kind of starts to get your pride up. Right? And, <clears throat> and throughout this conversation, the devil drops off God's covenant name. Everywhere you see uh, throughout these early chapters when it's God, it's the Lord God. And the, the Lord is in uh, all the small caps, right? Which means it's translating Yahweh. It's translating his personal name. It's translating the name by which he is known to his people, to his covenant people, to his group, to his church. It's his personal name, and the devil drops it from the conversation uh, and, and directs attention from that established relationship. Right? This is just the generic God that the devil is talking about, not the one with whom Adam and Eve have perfect communion already, this, this good, pristine, healthy relationship. Right? So the devil already, just in a simple sentence, is in a lot of ways um, undermining the relationship of trust. He's attacking the relationship. 
right? Temptation is, is an attack against our relationship to God. That relationship is supposed to consist of uh, our trusting him and our loving him and our obeying him. And the devil is trying to undermine the relationship. He's not just trying to get us to do something bad. He's trying to undermine our relationship with God. That's the essence of what um, temptation is. And here he's doing it subtly at first, right? Um, he's, he's deceiving covertly, indirectly, through this kind of question or <clears throat> that, that kind of raises eyebrows or whatever. But uh, this, this temptation involves deception. It involves lies. It involves falsehood. It's the attempt to promote unreality. He's trying to paint a picture of a new reality. If you saw things my way, then you wouldn't be in a relationship with God, right? Because you'd, you would think it was bad for you. That's what the devil wants. Uh, he's attempting to promote unreality for the sake of autonomy from God. He's trying to wrench Adam and Eve out of relationship. He's trying to wrench humanity apart from God. <clears throat> and, um, and he does so basically just by hinting that it seems kind of inappropriate for God to command what he did. He doesn't actually even say that yet. He just kind of hints at it. And the point comes across, right? Don't you think it's kind of weird that God would say what he did? Don't you think it's kind of inappropriate that he would command that? That doesn't, that doesn't seem good. Um, <clears throat> and so he's teaching Eve here uh, a hermeneutic of suspicion. We've, we've talked about that before. Yeah, he's teaching Eve, and, and he's teaching all of us, really, <laughs> <clears throat> as he's the deceiver of the whole world, he's teaching us not to trust God's word, that when we, we encounter God's word, our first response is suspicion. It's doubt. It's distrust. Rather than building on that as a, as a way for our, our relationship, instead of having a hermeneutic of submission where we say, hey, if God says it, even though I might not understand it, I'm sure it's good because I have a good relationship with God. Instead of that, it's a hermeneutic of suspicion, where we call into question everything. Why did God say that? That doesn't seem right to me. And we make ourselves the judge of God and of his word. And John Calvin said it's very dangerous. Very dangerous is the temptation when it is suggested to us that God is not to be obeyed except so far as the reason of his command is apparent. The true rule of obedience is that we, being content with a bare command should persuade ourselves that whatever he enjoins is just and right. right? We should be in a, in a position in our relationship where we say, even if I, this doesn't make sense to me, whatever he commands, I'm going to persuade myself it must be good. It must be for my good. Rather than suspect it's working against my good. Right? <clears throat> and, um, and here, even just with this, this brief interaction, this subtle, sort of covert indirect uh, questioning um, uh, the devil has begun to succeed you do see that Eve wavers a bit she magnifies God's strictness right she kind of agrees you know, maybe there is a bit of strictness here because uh, God did say you shouldn't eat the tree or even touch it but God didn't say that right Eve imagined that strictness. She magnified God's strictness, and she actually minimizes the threat of judgment because she says that, um, <clears throat> you know, you shall not eat that tree, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And that language is, um, is not as strong <laughs> as the language when God gave that command originally to Adam 
you will not touch the tree or you will surely die. Remember, you will, this is double verb, you will die, die. You will absolutely, guaranteed, surely die the day that you eat of that fruit. And, um, and she, she kind of pulls back on that. She minimizes the threat. She doesn't use the same kind of forceful language. <clears throat> and so, uh, so she's already in danger, right? She's in real danger, and it seems like the serpent hasn't even just barely begun, right? Uh, he's got a lot more to throw at her. The serpent said to the woman, you'll not surely die. And he actually quotes God. You'll not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. <clears throat> so now, here comes the overt, bold, direct assault on God's character, right? on God's love, on God's care for his people. He shows, actually, that he knows more about the situation than he was letting on before because he quotes, um, he quotes the original commandment maybe a little bit better than Eve did, right? Uh, he kind of, he lets it slip that, um, that he knows more about the situation than he was letting on previously. He knows about the tree. He knows that it's the tree of good and evil. He knows something about what God is doing with this thing. And, and the first, uh, Derek Kinder as a commentator says that the first doctrine to be denied is judgment. That's the first thing that the serpent denies. The first doctrine, the first truth that um, the serpent just outright comes and says, no, that's not true, right? is that uh, you will not surely die. It's, it's judgment. And then he goes on from there to openly accuse God of lying. Right? He ascribes jealousy to God. No, God knows that when you eat this fruit, you're going to be like him. And he doesn't want that to happen. He doesn't want you to be like him. Uh, he, he, he wants to keep you in your place, right? He's, he's impugning God's motives. He's ascribing jealousy to him. He says, God just wants to keep you down. He wants to keep you inferior. He wants to keep you insignificant. He does not want what is best for you. Right? You probably know better than God what is best for you. <clears throat> and uh, ultimately, what Satan is promising... <laughs> Is, uh, is that you will be like God when you sin against God. Right? He's actually promising some sort of divinity, right? Or at least the, the imitation of divinity. He's saying you will be like God. You will, he's promising divinity through autonomy, through separating yourself from God. You're in relationship with God now. That's not going get to get you what you want. Uh, what you really want is only achievable as you separate yourself from God by disobedience here, right? And so he promotes doubt. He provokes pride. Um, God does not want you to be like him, he says. And it calls into question God's motives and his character. And in fact, the truth is, um, that's exactly why God created us in the first place, is so that we could be like him. So that we could be like him and share his own joy and his love, and his eternal glory. He created us to be like him in relationship with him, in deep communion with him, not through our own autonomy, not through our rebellion. Right? So um, God makes good promises to us, promises of eternal life, that are only known in relationship with him, where the devil makes these promises that are lies, 
They're lying promises to wrench us out of relationship with him, the good relationship that we were made for. So, um, the devil's work is done. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, literally that's um, it's pretty strong language usually used for kind of lustful language. It was, it was a delight to the eyes. I mean, it was a lust of the eyes, right, this tree. Um, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So even though uh, the scriptures actually explicitly called out in chapter 2 that there was already every tree pleasant to the sight and good for food, there was already that just in abundance, just surrounding her all over the place in this garden in which God had cultivated himself and placed, uh, placed them in, uh, even though there was every tree pleasant to the sight, now she sees this one. And she can't see anything but this one thing, this one forbidden thing, this one forbidden fruit. And it's the only thing she wants. Right. She doesn't care about all the other good gifts. She doesn't care about God's generosity, his proven track record of, of character and grace and love. She doesn't care about that. Um, She's single-minded on this one thing that she's not supposed to have. She's led by her own desire. That's the, the language is bringing this out. She is led by her own desire. Technically, she is not coerced. The serpent is a subordinate. The serpent's not forcing her to do anything. Right? The serpent doesn't have any power over her that she's not willingly submitting herself to. Um, the serpent didn't even explicitly tell Eve to eat that fruit. He didn't even say, yeah, you should just go eat it. He didn't even say that. Right? She's led by her own desire. And James points this out in his uh, letter. He kind of helps us understand what temptation is. He says in chapter 1 uh, of James, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, bring, uh, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So this desire, this temptation that we're, we're led by our own desire, it stirs up sin, which stirs up death. And that's what has already happened with Eve. And conspicuously absent or conspicuously silent is her husband who was with her. Her husband who was with her. Adam was the one who was actually responsible here because God had made this covenant with Adam before he brought Eve into the picture, right? before he had created Eve, uh, God made Adam, he, made, um, he, he placed him in the garden, he gave him all authority in the world, he gave him every good thing, and he told him, you can eat of all these trees, just don't eat this one tree, you will die when you eat it. Right? And um, so he had made that covenant with Adam, and Adam had, uh, it was all, it was like uh, second person singular language with God saying, you shall not eat this. You, Adam, shall not eat this. And then when Eve is describing the covenant as, as it applies to her now, she's using uh, the second person plural language, um, uh, referring to uh, herself in communion with Adam. It's like together they're part of this covenant now because she came from Adam and because she's united to Adam, the covenant applies to her. But the covenant head, maybe this like technical theological language, the, the head of the covenant, the representative for humanity, the one who was really responsible was Adam, right? 
and he's kind of not the main character of this story. And that's, um, uh, you know, when she gave him the fruit, it doesn't even say that she related the whole conversation. She, she explained to Adam why, no, this is actually a good idea. Here's what the serpent said, right? It doesn't say anything about that. She just gave it to him. She ate, she gave him the fruit, and he ate, her husband who was with her. We don't know exactly why Adam ate the fruit. Uh, we can speculate. Maybe we can speculate a little bit during sermon discussion together why, why he just took it and didn't put up a fight. Um, we don't know why, what his temptation was, he, you know, his particular temptation to, to join his wife in open rebellion against God. It's not laid out for us, but he joined her, and he sinned, and the results then were incalculable. We're going to talk about this over the next uh, few Sundays where we discuss more about what sin is and um, the results of the fall, but um, the results of uh, their sin together here were incalculable. Adam, the head of humanity, he cast our race into slavery to sin and into misery. Real slavery to sin and real misery. The point of the Bible, the whole Bible now, is that uh, we need someone better than him to be a new head of humanity. We need somebody better than Adam. We need a new Adam. We need a new head of humanity. We're slaves to our own desires. We cannot free ourselves. Our desire, it's our own desires that lead us to sin. We can't break free of that, right? We are slaves. Left to ourselves, we are Adam's race. We are just like him. Left to ourselves, we're Adam's race. And if they were in pristine relationship with God and they gave in, I think we're seriously fooling ourselves if we think that um, we could offer significant resistance to temptation, just in and of ourselves, in our own strength, because of who we are. You're fooling yourself if you think you can stand against temptation. Um, We're the kind of people, we are exactly the kind of people. We are Adam's kind of people, Eve's kind of people, who succumb to temptation. That's who we are. That's that's our kind of humanity, right? Our default mode is to give in. We don't even need the devil to trick us much anymore. He probably is not bouncing around uh, to each individual that lives on the planet. Uh, He and all his demons... um, Every time we're tempted to sin, and he's kind of stirring that up, it's probably not the case, right? We don't really need him to tempt us, to trick us. Temptation to sin is is all around us, it's within us, and we give in without a fight all the time. You don't even know how many times you give in, right? Um, When uh, when tempted with lust, I think uh, a lot of you could... uh, Acknowledge that the response to that temptation is pretty much automatic. When tempted with things like greed or envy, um, do you you even think about covetousness? Do you even think about wanting whatever this material thing is for my own personal consumption? Do you ever ever think about um, acting out in anger before you just do and blaming it on other people? you even think about it? These things happen every day. We cave into temptation every day, all the time. That's what kind of people we are. We can't just learn how to stand against it in our own strength and think that we're going to fix the big problem. 
by doing that, right? If I can just get my life together well enough, if I can become self-sufficient and stay away from bad things and have a life that looks like obedience to God, if I can just do that, I'll be good. And it's going to fix what's wrong with me, and it's going to begin to fix what's wrong with the world. If, if, if everybody else would just do what I am doing and, uh, and get their act together and uh, stand up against temptation to sin, um, then this world would be a better place. And that's the path forward, isn't it? We cannot expect to be sufficient uh, in and of ourselves and somehow fix everything that's broken by just learning how to resist temptation like we should. It's not going to work. We don't have the power uh, in and of ourselves to do that. We we assume, without even thinking, that we're up to the task for that. We assume that we are up to the task. I just need maybe a few tricks. I need to learn the devil's schemes. I need to be equipped with some ways to think about this better, and then I will be able to resist temptation on my own, right? Um, we assume that we're up to that task, that, that self-sufficiency, that's the devil won, right? Uh, the devil won, if that's what you think. The devil has succeeded in, in promoting you as an autonomous being from God. I don't need God. I just need to learn a few tricks to be able to resist temptation. Rearrange my life in a few ways so that I produce a better outcome in my obedience. Uh, that's self-sufficiency. That's exactly what the devil was trying to get us to. But <clears throat> um, it's not going to work in our weakness because we are Adam's race. We're the kind of people who succumb to temptation because, because that is what the scriptures say is true about us. Because of our weakness, we need to pray. Lead us not into temptation. Um, lead us not there because if we go there, we're going to fall to it. And our only hope is that you would just lead us not into it, right? Um, we, we have to pray for God's help. Otherwise, we presume our own tendency to fail. That's what we should presume, our own tendency to fail in the face of temptation. Because ultimately, it's not just something being fixed in us that's going to provide the solution here. Ultimately, the solution is we need a new head. We need a new head of humanity, a new representative a vicar, someone that we can live vicariously through, that his, his life would uh, vicariously count for us. Right? We need a new head, a new champion to do for us what we cannot hope to do for ourselves in standing up against temptation and never sinning. Right? We need somebody else to do that for us because we're not the kind of person to do that. And uh, we need someone to resist the tempter the devil himself, and to defeat him. We need someone to restore our good relationship with the triune God, which is what we were made for, to be like God in relationship to God. We need someone to renew us in the joy and the love and the glory that we were created for as humanity made in God's image. We were made for this, uh, for joy and love and glory, and we need somebody to restore that for us and to show us what true humanity is supposed to look like, then so we might be able to imitate him. Right. Uh, after he's saved us from ourselves, then we can think about imitating him in resisting temptation. Right. But that's why God the Son came into the world. It was the true incarnation. This thing with the serpent, the devil, it was the cheap knockoff. The devil's not really 
on our side. God the Son came into the world in the person of Jesus Christ to be God with us. That's his name. That's who he is. God with us. He's God for us. Right? He's God on our side. Even though he didn't have to be. Even though because we sinned and we rebelled against him, um, he, he still came for us out of his grace, out of his love. God for us in the person of Jesus Christ, the true human, to be our substitute, to be our champion, to be our vicar, uh, the victorious one over temptation and sin. And, and so you can see the contrast here between this story from Genesis 3 and what Sarah read in our uh, gospel reading from Matthew 3 and 4, where Jesus is set forth in Matthew's gospel. And in, in all the gospels where it talks about um, his baptism, that's maybe a confusing point for us. Jesus says, let this be done to fulfill all righteousness. He's not being baptized because he needs to forgive sins. He's being baptized on our behalf to unite himself to us so that he could be the one who lives for us, so that he could be our substitute, so that he could be our new head of the covenant, head of humanity, so that he could be our champion. That's the point of his baptism is so that we are united to him so that he can live for us. And then immediately after his baptism, what happened? He went out and faced temptation, much greater than the temptation that Adam and Eve faced in the garden. They were in a luscious garden. Every tree around them was good for food and pleasant to the eyes. They were in paradise. He was in the wilderness for 40 days with nothing to eat. That was his temptation. They had this state of fullness. He was in a state of starvation. Have you ever not eaten for 40 days? Their temptation was to eat a simple fruit, you know, just do this one. It's seemingly innocuous little thing. His temptation was, you know, you can survive if you just turn this, this stone into bread. It'll keep you alive. He, he's being tempted with much grander things. He's been tempted with visions of power and glory. Um, Adam, in the garden, abdicated his decision. Didn't even question the whole thing, right? Let Eve make the decision for him, gave up his, uh, his position, whereas Jesus, uh, he's the, the perfecter of our faith. He took obedience all the way to the very end. Um, the first Adam failed, the second Adam actually conquered the devil after a long temptation. They, they suffered under one little temptation. He suffered under three major trials over a long period of time. And he beat the devil. He beat him. And the devil fled from him. And, um, and the first Adam had a record of sin and death that's been imputed to every single one of us. And, uh, and the second Adam, the new Adam, Jesus Christ, had a record of innocence and righteousness and health and life and true relationship with God, a fully blessed life, and he gives all of that to us freely. It's imputed to us. It's counted to us. Now, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, you have a new head of humanity. Right? Everything that's true about him is true about you through your faith in him, through your union with him. And it says uh, in Hebrews chapter 5, Although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. 
and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. All of those who are with Christ, all of those who submit themselves in faith uh, faith to, to Jesus Christ, he is the source of eternal salvation. He is the head of the humanity that will be saved, the humanity that's being restored in in right relationship with God and and renewed in his image. So uh, through his life, through his resistance to temptation, through his uh, obedience, even to the point of death, you know, what it says in Revelation 12, the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, Jesus Christ beat him. In and of yourself, you have no chance of beating him. He's too crafty, right? The devil is too much for you. He's too powerful an enemy for you. But you have a champion who has already beat him. He's already beaten the devil. Previously, Adam's story was our story. Uh, In him, it was our story in and of ourselves, as those who are descended from him, as part of Adam's race. Um, Our story is one of failure in the face of temptation. But now, by faith, Jesus' story is our story. What you see in the Gospels is a new sort of a biography for you. It is your biography. What you see in Jesus' life, who he is as as the true human who perfectly obeyed God and enjoyed a perfect relationship with him, his whole story is our story. His resistance to temptation, that is actually ours, right? If it's true of him, it's true of us. And because of his spirit who lives in us, we actually have his life in us. His power over temptation is ours. His obedience is ours. It's in there somewhere, spiritually. I'm not sure I know how to describe that. But it's, it's ours. Right? It belongs to us by his grace. His victory over temptation, it counts for us. His record is imputed to us. His resources are ours. His life is ours. And now his life is the pattern for ours, for our imitation. After you've gotten first that relationship with him where uh, he counts for you, his life counts for you, and he saves you from yourself. He does for you what you could not hope to do for yourself through his resistance to temptation. Uh, After you've got that relationship with him, then you can look at him and say, wow, how should I live? I'll live in light of that. I'll live in light of who he is. I'll live how he lived. His relationship with the Father is our relationship with the Father. His absolute dependence on God that deep communion that he always experienced with God in his life, that absolute trust in God's word, in God's promise, in God's presence, uh, we need that. We need a greater trust. His relationship with his father, that's our relationship. We need to live into that. We need to uh, cultivate a a love for God that doesn't come out of nowhere. We need to cultivate a love for God We need to ask God to to make that happen in our hearts. Uh, It doesn't come out of nowhere. It comes in response to who he is and in response to what he's done for us in the gospel and giving his son Jesus. Um, And and so when we do that, John Calvin says, you know, we can persuade ourselves that whatever he enjoins is just and right. Whatever he commands, whatever we see in the scriptures, whatever his word says, his promises are good, his commands are good. They might not make sense to us, but we know that they're good, right? And that kind of obedience comes from a real relationship with him. That relationship, the essence of it is it's one of grace. He loves you and he gave his son Jesus for you. You can know that he's not out in your life. He's not out in the world 
to be cruel to you or to be withholding from you, all these things that the devil basically accused him of, he wants you to be like him in perfect communion with him that lasts forever, that's characterized by joy and peace and love and glory. He wants that for you so you can believe what he says when he says it in the scriptures. You can have that hermeneutic of submission rather than suspicion. Uh, The empty promises of the false gods are just that. They're empty. These things promise you eternal security, a bank account, right? Um, a uh, a, A good retirement plan. It promises you this concept of security. Uh, You can have real pleasure if you marry the right person, if you can get into bed with the right person. Lust promises you this just infinite pleasure and joy. Um, Money, power, these things make empty promises to you. They are empty promises because they are not eternal, they're not lasting, They're not true because you were made to find all these things, your acceptance and your security and your pleasure and joy and love. You're made to find all of these things in relationship with God, and God has gone to great lengths to restore that relationship with you by his grace, by giving his son. It's it's at a great cost to himself, the life of his own son. He came into the world to extend love to you, a love that will never end, a love that will never fail his promises, uh, in contrast with those of the false gods, in, promise, in contrast with the, the uh, subtleties of the devil making you think you could be like God and you could be happy apart from God, uh, those are all lies. The promise of the one true God, um, the promises of the God of love, they're guaranteed to you by the blood of his Son. Right? And uh, those promises are true joy, true love, true glory, and you can trust him, because you've seen Jesus, uh, you can trust God and you can obey him. You can live in response to him. You can live in relationship to him the way that you were meant to. And so um, you need to pray for that. Right? Uh, if that seems foreign to you, you need to pray that Jesus Christ would become real to you, that you would be, be able to imagine his life counting for you, his resistance to temptation being yours. Right? That's what your imagination is for, so that you can imagine yourself in Jesus Christ so that his victory is truly yours, so that his life, his obedience, his love, his joy, all of that belongs to you. You need to pray that God would help you to understand what that means in a way that, that generates a real passion for God, generates a real trust in God, generates a real love for God that transforms your life from, uh, from one that constantly fails uh, in, the, in the face of temptation to one that begins to live in in true obedience to God uh, through relationship with Jesus Christ. You can pray for that. God wants that for you. Amen. Let's pray for that together. Father, we know that it is uh, the essence of your holy scriptures uh, and the essence of your gospel, the good news about your son, Jesus, that you do love us and you want the best for us. And yet we live lives that are uh, characterized by the thought that, uh, by the assumption, the unthinking assumption that we know what's best for us better than you do, that, um, that you must be withholding, that truly uh, you're, you're to be held under suspicion. And we pray that you would overcome that by fixing our eyes on Christ, that you would help Jesus Christ, uh, his, his life and his death and resurrection on our behalf to become more real to us, that we would be able to live in and through him 
that his power would be alive in our lives uh, by your Holy Spirit who dwells in us, and that uh, we would be able to taste a little bit of his own relationship with you, uh, one that's characterized by his submission and his obedience and his love. We pray that that would become uh, true just to, to a little degree in our lives, that you would free us from uh, a constant bombardment of temptation, that you would free us from always failing in the face of temptation, that you would grant us some measure of victory entirely by your grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.